You're listening to Sunday Comics, a once-monthly sub-show of Data Plus Love. Now, you might be asking, Zach, why do a show about comic books on a podcast channel about data visualization? And there's several answers to that, first of which being, it's my show, guys. Sorry. But I also have more earnest and serious answers, too. Scott McCloud, who literally wrote the book on comics called Understanding Comics, the Invisible Art, described comic book storytelling as juxtaposed pictorial and other images and deliberate sequence intended to convey information. And if that's not an amazing definition of data visualization, I don't know what is. In the practice of data viz, we take images in the forms of charts, graphs, and text and position them in a logical pattern to provide additional information and context with each subsequent piece. Additionally, the visual style of comic book storytelling can either be close to realism or strictly iconic, like literally a circle with two lines and a dash to indicate a smiley face. So much like DataViz, you can have highly granular data that's being displayed or heavily aggregated. Either way, we're able to interpret what it means. And a more personal reason, a lot of my very early influences, both in terms of how I thought about the world, how I understood stories, and how I thought about art were influenced by reading the Sunday comics with my dad. He'd sit me down in his lap and read read stuff like Calvin and Hobbes, Beetle Bailey, and Hagar the Horrible, each of which had their own different visual styles and languages, and each had their own different sort of tone and way of expressing their jokes and stories. If you are unfamiliar with the format of comic books or sort of the literary genre, don't worry about it. I've got all that covered for you. In fact, let me give you a little historical rundown. In America, at least, we think back to the golden age of comics, which is the sort of dawn of the superhero era. The superheroes weren't the only characters out on the street. There were pulp heroes, there were cowboys, there were all sorts of stuff. In fact, crime comics and sort of some of the more ghastly aspects of comic books were around from the very beginning. But later, there was a moral panic around the same time as McCarthyism, and a book called The Seduction of the Innocent was written by a doctor named Frederick Wortham. And in this, he purported that comic books caused all sorts of criminal behaviors, uh, homosexuality, and other things in children, which sounds a lot like many of the other moral panics we've heard over time, including other things like video games. But in reality, all children were reading comic books during this period, much like all children were playing video games during the early 90s. This moral panic succeeded in killing off many of the genres of comics in America that involved crime, which ultimately led to superheroes being the predominant genre that we now think of comic books as being. Fortunately, in the more recent eras, they've diversified again, and there's a much wider variety of stories being told in comic books, from sort of the classic superhero books to crime books, biographies, and basically any other topic you can think of. In fact, there are many very heavy, serious topics that have been covered by comics in a very important way, like Mouse by Art Spiegelman, which covered the persecution of the Jews during the Holocaust and World War II, and Persepolis by Marjane Starpai, which covered her experiences as a young girl during the Iranian Revolution. I say all of this to say that we're going to be covering a wide swath of the spectrum of comic books on this show. Some of them are going to be more towards the Persepolis end of the spectrum, and some of them might be more towards the Deadpool end of the spectrum. So if a particular topic isn't to your liking, don't worry about it. I'll get to something that will be ultimately. And while I'm discussing these things, not only am I going to be discussing the format and method of storytelling, I'm going to be discussing some of the ways that it might apply to the way we think about data visualization. So I look forward to sharing this episode and future episodes with you. Let me know what you think. I look forward to talking with you.
Welcome back. So for Sunday Comics, July 2022, we are covering Dragon Hoops by Gene Luen Yang. It's actually pretty rare that when you're discussing a comic book or graphic novel, which I repeat myself, they're the same thing, um, we can refer to a single individual as the creator because in most instances, there's typically a team. There's usually a writer who composes the story and describes the layout of the pages. There is a penciler who actually goes in and draws all the stuff and oftentimes an anchor who comes in and finishes the pages, adding weight and depth to the images. Uh, which are ultimately colored by even a fourth party. Now, in modern comics, more often, the artists are taking on more of the responsibilities with the penciler traditionally taking up more of the inking and more of the coloring, oftentimes in digital, uh, as some of those other roles become less necessary. And in the realm of indie comics, like this comic that we're discussing today, there often is only one creator as... They're not really getting paid for this until it sells, so it's difficult to wrangle in other parties to come help with the project, particularly when it's a 450-page long passion project written by a high school teacher. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So Gene Lun Yang is a MacArthur genius, and at the time this book was written, he was a computer programming and Algebra II teacher at Bishop O'Dowd High School in Oakland, California. Prior to writing this, uh, Yang had gone to Yale, he had written a couple graphic novels in his own, like American Born Chinese, which was the first graphic novel to be named finalist for the National Book Award, uh, which he followed up by a book called Boxers and Saints, which was about the boxer revolution in China. And many of Yang's books tackle ideas about sort of identity. In his case, he is a second generation Chinese immigrant who's Catholic. And in many cases, the Chinese part of his heritage rejects the Catholic part of his heritage. And the Catholic part of his heritage doesn't really have much of a history in China. So books like Boxers and Saints really ties those two concepts together and explores them. In this case, we're talking about his third uh, real entry into the graphic novel forum known as Dragon Hoops. So at its core, if you were to think about the high-level concept of Dragon Hoops, it's a sports book. It's about the high school basketball team at Bishop O'Dowd High School. And Gene Lunyang uh, was never really an athletic guy, and he inserts himself into the story. So first, let's talk about the visual style of this book. It's a very classically cartoony. It's very flat-looking. Characters aren't super detailed. It's way closer to, like, peanuts than something you would see on, like, the Marvel Comics stands. So in that case, we're talking about a more um, iconic representation than a more realistic representation where stuff has been distilled down to simpler ideas to express. Because when you're having to do all this yourself, in addition to teaching school and operating a family, that's a big lift. In fact, throughout the book, Jean uh, Lun Yang uses a pie chart to express how his life is working out. So the way he expresses it is 25% is teaching, 25% is comics, and 50% is family. And later in the book, he'll revisit that and revise it to express the different responsibilities and loads that he is taking on as part of these projects. But I digress. Like I said, this is a basketball book. But at the center of the story, it's really about two main characters, the first of which is Yang himself, because he has recently come off uh, the success of his second graphic novel. He's been receiving a lot of rave reviews, but he's still an indie comics guy, which means when he takes on one of these projects, he's really doing all of the work himself. He's not getting the support of a major publisher like Marvel or DC. He doesn't have editors. He doesn't have colorists. All of the work is basically on him, and that means there's no money until it's done, and that means it, there's no money if it doesn't sell either. 
So when Yang takes on new projects, they are a major commitment in the fact that it's first going to take up several years of his life. And also he's basically doing it for free. So it's not that different from you taking on DataViz passion projects online. You're not getting paid for these. You're doing this as both an investment in yourself and a, you know, an exercise in passion. So whatever he does, he has to make sure that it's something he's really invested in. And as part of this, uh, he's a teacher at a local Catholic high school in Oakland called Bishop O'Dowd. And he starts to hear rumblings about the basketball team, which as not being a sports guy before in his life, feels like a foreign language to him. In fact, he doesn't really understand the rules of basketball. He doesn't understand, you know, the culture behind basketball. And it's just because he he was never an athletic guy. So it, there's a disconnect there. But he, uh, he goes to visit Coach Lou one day, who is the basketball coach at Bishop O'Dowd, because he's been hearing that like this is the big year for the team. And Coach Lou is really the second protagonist of the book. The story behind Bishop O'Dowd and the, essentially their run for state is kind of epic. So uh, Coach Lou was a player at Bishop O'Dowd many years before. And in fact, he started off as a skinny, awkward kid, so much like Yang. So Yang very quickly sort of feels a kinship with him. And uh, during a state championship run, Coach Lou actually should have won the game. So it was like a game-winning, buzzer-beating shot that Coach Lou takes. It goes in, but one of his teammates was goaltending during the shot. So an offensive foul, it gets called off, and uh, they lose the championship. And in fact, Bishop O'Dowd has gone zero for eight in state championships since then. So they have not won any. And Coach Lou himself lost five of those as coach. Six if you count the one that he played in. So there is this sort of underlying tension of the state championship for the school, not just in terms of, you know, the school pride, but Coach Lou's job is probably going to be on the line if he's unable to deliver one at this point. You know, he's had five shots as a coach, and if he loses number six, it, it's probably time for him to move on. And it's sort of through this that Coach Lou expresses his philosophy of basketball, which Yang embraces and starts to think about his own future projects through, which is least mistakes wins. And a lot of this goes back to Coach Lou's early basketball career. So he was a really great player at Bishop O'Dowd and went on to play in college and probably could have gone pro, but he injured himself showboating in a foot race and basically ended his basketball career early, which is part of how he ended up coming back to Bishop O'Dowd to become an assistant coach under his coach, Mike Phelps. So Coach Phelps is going to be an elephant in the room through most of the book with Yang himself in conversations with his wife saying, I don't think I can include Mike Phelps in the book. And we don't really know why, because by all indications, Mike was one of the most winningest coaches in all of California history. Like actually maybe second ever would have been first if something hadn't happened. And we don't know exactly what that something is until later in the book. So this is teased throughout the book saying, I can't include Coach Phelps. Um, and honestly, Coach Phelps is one of the things that in the book makes me think the most about DataViz. And let me get back to that as we continue the story. So one of the reasons that the team is particularly hopeful for a championship run this year is that Coach has two particularly powerful weapons on his roster. The first of which being Ivan Rab, who is his power forward, and the second being Paris Austin, who is his point guard. Ivan is big and powerful on the court, uh, which 
juxtaposes directly to him off the court where he is incredibly quiet and polite and Paris is actually really braggadocious on off the court like he's a big personality but when he's on the court he's very slick elegant and graceful so the two um, are really effective together really powerful with Ivan alone being one of the if not the best high school player in the country at that point there's some other prominent players in the roster. I'm not gonna hit every one of them, but among those are Javine Sandu, who is Sikh, who actually gets the chance to talk about his faith at school when the school presents a lesson on Gandhi, and he's the only kid in the class that's offended by it, uh, which raises the question, why would anyone be offended by Gandhi? And it turns out Gandhi has a very checkered past with the Sikhs. Uh, Alex Zhao, on the other hand, was a Chinese student who originally transferred to the U.S. to play basketball um, at Rhode Island, only to find out that Rhode Island is in fact the smallest state in the country and ultimately is able to find his way to Bishop O'Dowd, but is only able to play at, on junior varsity until his senior year, where now he's finally kind of made it to the show. So you've got some of these really interesting characters. And there's actually some interesting conversations about how these characters are represented and rendered in the book within the pages of the book. So at different points of the book, Yang breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the audience, much like someone in a play might turn to address the audience. And in some cases, like uh, with Javine, Javine is talking with him about some of the early drawings he's seen of himself for the book and asking if his hair could look different, uh, saying that he has more of a straight hairline across the top. And Yang expresses to him, well, I'm trying to find a way in the sort of very simple rendering of the comic style I'm using to make sure that your hairstyle looks different from some of the African-American characters so that you read as Punjabi correctly instead of African-American. So some of those things actually occur within the book, both with you know, the tease of Mike Phelps as well as, hey, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing within the comic. And as the story goes on, uh, it gets more complex, both in terms of the basketball season as well as Jean Lun Yang's personal life. An early season loss to a team that they should have blown away really shakes the team to its core. And at the same time, Yang gets an offer to write Superman for DC Comics, which is obviously one of the uh, bigger positions that you could receive within this industry that he's wanted to break into. First of all, breaking into working with a major publisher, but second, with one of the top tier characters. However, this schedule is definitely going to mess up that 25-25-50 ratio that he has established for his life. And one of the things about this book also is that Yang chose this as a topic to write before he knew where the season was actually going. So he chose to write the book Dragon Hoops about the Bishop O'Dowd Dragons before he actually knew if they were even going to make it to the state championship. He was doing it on speculation on the energy of the team alone. So throughout the season, not only does he get invested in the basketball team traveling with them and watching their games, he goes back and researches the history of basketball, which he also tells through the book. So you're getting stories both of Yang, of the different characters, of the basketball team, and the history of the sport itself. And many of these stories are told in little interludes throughout the book, the first of which being James Naismith creating basketball at the YMCA in 1891 as an alternative to calisthenics because many of the men at the YMCA did not want to do stretching exercises for fun, but also in the winter it was too cold for them to enjoy many of the outdoor sports and bringing those outdoor sports indoors proved you know, too destructive and rowdy on the gym. So he developed basketball. Later, it was adopted you know, by women as well. And at the time, many of sort of the old stodgy men were like, no, this women are too weak for this. It'll, they'll be unattractive to spouses and all these other excuses about why women couldn't play basketball. And originally, women's basketball had a slightly different rule set, although it later came to align more closely with the male 
uh, skill set. And then it goes into the history of basketball in, you know, race relations in the U.S. and how there were more sort of divided themed teams. And at the time, like the Globetrotters, not actually being from Harlem, chose that name to sort of uh, identify more the African-American community, how they were like Jewish teams. And they're all sort of, you know, themed and a little bit over the top. And eventually how race relations within basketball improved and it became more of a unified sport in the U.S. And then it goes on to talk about Chinese basketball and how China, you know, developed a basketball program, a lot of which sort of behind an iron curtain where they weren't really seeing what was going on in U.S. basketball. And in fact, how basketball in China originally came to them through missionaries and essentially, um, when Mao threw out the missionaries, he said, hey, but we can keep the basketball thing because everyone really likes it and maybe it'll make people stronger, which was one of the selling points of the missionaries in basketball. So China was developing this basketball program sort of, I don't know, with blinders on until they saw Michael Jordan in 1989 and it totally blew away their idea of what basketball could be. So they started choosing children at an extraordinarily young age who, you know, seemed to have the physical prowess that would uh, make them, you know, great at basketball. And it took them quite a while until they eventually actually launched some successful NBA players out of that. And that's what Alex uh, Zhao was hoping to happen before he came to Bishop O'Dowd. He was an early student in this Chinese basketball program, but it, it wasn't going as strong as it used to be, which is why he ultimately ended up coming to the U.S. because he just really wanted to play the game and play it competitively with people that were at his level. In terms of story progression, the Bishop O'Dowd team does in fact progress successfully through the season and make it to the state championships, uh, despite some early losses and some frustrations along the way. And it's along the way, especially towards the end of the story, where we get more of that fourth wall breaking from Yang, sometimes speaking directly to us and sometimes speaking to his wife, about how important is it to be accurate and truthful in representation of real life events? How really accurate do you need to be? Because He's sitting at a table with his wife and, you know, again, this is a retelling and sort of a fictionalized account of real things in many cases, sometimes to express ideas to us. For example, one conversation with Javine actually occurred over text, but for the book it was shown as an in-person conversation. Um, what do we do with Mike Phelps? Because Mike Phelps is a problem in the story. And before even knowing what Mike Phelps is, we're, we're seeing this and we're teased about it constantly to the point where we want to know what the story is with Mike Phelps. Yang's wife is concerned that if he draws Mike Phelps into the story, that the story will lose a lot of the sort of empathy and engagement of the audience. On the other hand, Yang is concerned that if he leaves Mike Phelps out of the story, that he's leaving out an essential player in so much of the history of the story and in the lives of many of the people of the story. So ultimately, we find out what the deal is with Mike Phelps. So Coach Mike Phelps would have been the winningest men's basketball coach in California history. Uh, but around the time in 2002, when Yang was still an early teacher at the school, he was asked one day if he could take over teaching the Algebra 2 class because the Algebra 2 teacher was being put on indefinite leave. That Algebra 2 teacher was Mike Phelps because in 1960s, um, someone came forward in 2002, back when Mike Phelps was 20, uh, to say that he had molested them as a student. And Phelps asserted his innocence, and both he and his, his players, past and present, uh, said that they believe him. Uh, no other accusers came forward. Ultimately, the charges against Phelps were dismissed, but uh, Bishop O'Dowd High School taking that seriously and especially wanting to push back against a lot of the accusations of Catholic institutions uh, not believing victims 
uh, asked Mike Phelps not to return. So Coach Lou uh, has been struggling with how to feel about his mentor because Mike Phelps was really there for him in his young life. Like he would drive him uh, places when he needed a ride because Coach Lou didn't live in a great place in town. And he would do this for so many of his players. Like he was very generous with his time. So a lot of people are unsure how to handle Mike Phelps. And by the time that we're in the story, uh, Mr. Phelps is a very, very old man. So he's in a wheelchair, he's slumped over. He's very sad looking, he's not totally there mentally. And the, the real takeaway is that no one wants to be near Coach Phelps. He's like radioactive. And just like the story, the story doesn't want to go near Mike Phelps because Mike Phelps is radioactive. Does pulling Mike Phelps into the story taint the story? You know, is it going to ruin our feeling about the players and the school and the experience if we think about Mike Phelps? Because we don't ultimately know if he did this or not. And at the end of the day, Coach Lou talks about how he thinks about it. And Coach Lou says that whenever he would see Mike Phelps, he'd come up to him and give him a hug and a kiss on the forehead in his wheelchair and ask, how you been, Coach? And I think that's uh, a really sort of telling thing about uh, Coach Lou. Coach Lou is willing to sort of extend this grace, not even knowing if it's true or not, but seeing this person that has sort of been rejected by the rest of society and saying, you know, while he may have made mistakes, He's definitely either paying for them now or going to pay for them in the future, and that I can at least extend to him some humanity. So I don't know. It's it's a definite conversation to be had, but it's interesting. And the whole, you know, Mike Phelps thing made me think about sometimes how we deal with our data products. Have you ever had a dashboard where you had to deliver a piece of bad news? Or sometimes you discover something that hasn't been asked for, but you know it could actually throw off some of the things that your client's looking for on the dashboard. Like how much detail, how much honesty do we need to deliver in our data products? I know in a previous role, I would have people sometimes say, I don't really like that number. Can we not include this particular metric on the dashboard? What's our responsibility there? You know, to tell the truth of the story. You know, are we to deliver the product as asked explicitly? Are we sometimes there to deliver bad news even when they don't want it? I don't know. It's an interesting question. And I think Mike Phelps is that sort of question, that poison pill in the story that has to be discussed, you know, whether we know how we feel about it or not. In the same way, sometimes we have to deliver bad news, maybe even bad news we're not being asked to deliver, but we know about. So ultimately, uh, the Bishop O'Dowd Dragons make it to the state championship against the Mater Dei Monarchs. And it all comes down to a very, very, very similar situation to Coach Lou himself. And again, this is a nonfiction book, so it's kind of crazy that this happens again. But Ivan Rabb takes a foul and gets to take two penalty shots, the first of which he misses. The score at this point in the game is tied 64-64, and it's down to one second on the clock. Ivan Rabb sinks a one-point penalty shot, beating the Monarchs 65-64 to in a total nail-biter ending. And it's pretty amazing because Yang didn't write this knowing that's where this season of basketball was going, but he actually picked a really amazing story to tell. I think one of the most emotional parts of the story, and this is a story with a lot of emotion packed into it, is Yang spotting Coach Lou off to the side right after the game with uh, tears streaming down his cheeks on the phone, saying to Coach Mike Phelps that after all these years that they'd finally done it and that he loves him. 
So I thought that was really a poignant sort of wrap up and ending to the book. And back to our sort of Gene Lun Yang's personal life and the 25, 25, 50 ratio. So in his personal journey throughout the book, he had really embraced Coach Lou's idea of least mistakes wins, which can work in a basketball game where, you know, the least amount of fouls doesn't take out your best players. The least amount of wild shots doesn't hand the ball over as much. In his case, he has this opportunity to write Superman, and he's been talking with another Superman writer who's also Chinese, incidentally. And they've been discussing what's it like to write this? What's the kind of commitment? What's the schedule like? How bad's the crunch? And he's realizing that if he's to take on the Superman book, in addition to telling Dragon Hoops and teaching at school and his family, that he's going to be nudging into that precious 50% of his family time. And while this is a dream job for him and something he has always sort of aspired to do in his life, he's not going to be able to do it with the current schedule he has. And given that, uh, Yang decides that he's not going to be able to teach if he's going to take up writing Superman. So that's sort of the natural evolution of the process for him and that he knows he's going to have to step away from his education career if he wants to both take on this new project and safeguard that family time that is so important to him. I really enjoyed reading Dragon Hoops. I'm saying that as someone that usually doesn't care that much about sports. So the fact that I would choose a sports book for my first episode of this tells you how much I really believed in this particular uh, project. And I think you would really like it if you gave it a shot. So whether or not you're a comic reader, uh, push that to the side, uh, give it a go. It's a quick read. It'll take you maybe three hours and it's not, uh, not bad for a rainy day afternoon. This would not be a comic book themed thing if I did not tease you what was coming next. So next month we'll be covering Moon Knight from the Dead, written by Warren Ellis and illustrated by Declan Shalvely. It's a brisk 137 pages and tells six short stories that knit together the meta arc of who Moon Knight is, why he is the way he is, and why you should care all in ways that are far better than the Marvel Studios Disney Plus series. So I'll see you back next time. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3 and you can get more if you choose or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one you won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network.